On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther, uh, a monk, not just any monk, but a a well-educated monk, an authorized teacher in the Roman Catholic Church, the medieval Roman Catholic Church, nailed what were called 95 theses. A thesis or a thesis was a statement. Uh, And he nailed it to uh, this document of 95 of them to the church door, the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Now that sounds like a rather odd thing to do, but it was actually the bulletin board. And when you wanted to announce something, I've lost a dog, I've got a yard sale going on, you would nail it to the church door. This was the bulletin board. Uh, Now it was in Latin, and it was meant to be an announcement of, okay, I'd like to get together and discuss these problems that need to be dealt with in the church. Well, some of his buddies had uh, recently discovered this uh, new invention uh, called the printing press. And, uh, and so it was kind of like TikTok of the day. I mean, the next day it was published in German. And it, it got all over Germany. And what began then in 1517, we know, is the Protestant Reformation. Uh, Luther was not looking to break with the medieval Catholic Church. That was not his intention. It was instead to uh, talk about things that needed to be changed. Many people knew at this point that there needed to be changes in the medieval Roman Catholic Church. This was not a surprise to anybody. But he was coming at it from a theological perspective rather than a political one. Um, The Roman Catholic Church did did not really appreciate this desire. And in 1521, he was excommunicated uh, from the Roman Catholic Church. And really, the Protestant Reformation began in earnest. Some German princes saved him from his certain death, uh, the Diet of Worms or the Diet of Worms, uh, where he was judged and excommunicated or the sentence delivered. Uh, And he spent uh, the next months actually in an attic in someone's castle translating the New Testament into German. Because up until that point, Germans could not read the Bible unless they were educated, rich, and knew Latin. But he said, this is not how it's meant to be. Our sole authority for what we are to believe and what we are to do is the Word of God. And as the Word of God was put into the hands of normal, everyday Germans like us, I know we're not Germans, uh, people started coming to Christ and seeing that salvation was not through actions or Christ plus anything. Instead, it is through Christ alone by God's grace alone, through faith alone. These are called the five solas, and it is to the glory of God alone, and it is by Scripture alone. Why was the the Reformation necessary? Well, it's not that the Roman Catholic Church had denied Jesus. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in uh, the authority of God's Word, as long as it was interpreted their way. And they even use words like grace and faith. All the words we've used today, they would have said, yeah, sure, absolutely. The problem was they had redefined these words. And no longer was salvation seen in the institutional church as believing in Christ, but rather it was believing in Christ plus other things. And if you didn't do enough of the plus other things, then you would end up in purgatory, which is not real, uh, where you would have to work off your sins that Christ had not been sufficient to pay for. Do you see how that's a problem? See, Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. He didn't say, I've done most of it, now it's up to you. Praise God he didn't. Because there would be no assurance of salvation. 
There, there would be no holiness in this life because we'd be so worried about not going to purgatory that we'd be so focused on self it would keep us and rob us from our ability actually to do anything for Jesus. Instead, Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Do you remember what he told the, the thief on the cross? He said, today you will be with me in paradise. Don't you know that thief had done some mighty bad things? And you and I have too. But Christ's blood is sufficient. It is all that is needed for salvation. There is a clarity of the gospel that had been lost in the institutional medieval Roman Catholic Church. It's like when you go fishing and the waters are muddy. The fish are there, the bait is there. They can't always see each other, can they? The gospel had become muddied. It was no longer clear. But the Lord raised up men like Martin Luther, Ulrich Zingli, John Calvin, Philip Melanchthon, using others like Erasmus and their phenomenal foundational work of, of recapturing the, the Word of God. And He used it to bring the gospel back to the church. And that's what we mark today. It is a work of God that the gospel might be proclaimed from the pulpit in our hearts and in our community. And so we look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, which is one of the best passages in Scripture that starts us in the lows of lows of our need for Jesus and takes us to the highest of highs of the very courts of heaven and how we get there as we deal with this fundamental question that every man and every woman must ask and answer, how is man made right with God? Now, it's a big question because Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 tell us some really bad things about ourselves. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It doesn't say sick. It says you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We were like zombies, right? We were dead and we were walking. We were dead and we were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is Satan himself. And not only that, we were carrying out the desires of our flesh, the desires of the body and mind. We were obeying these sinful passions in our heart and we wanted nothing to do with God. It is like a robber doesn't want to be with a cop. That was our relationship with God. This is a very bad thing. In fact, this text says that we were the sons of disobedience. Sons not meaning we're the children of. It means we're so closely identified. This is our identity with disobedience. You want to know what's in my heart apart from Christ? It is not obedience. It is disobedience. Running from God... And spitting in his face as I go and wanting nothing to do with him. The result of this is that we were children of wrath. What does that mean, children of wrath? It means that God's wrath was upon us. You know, God's judgment is coming either at our death, if we're not believers, or the day of judgment, if we're not believers. Uh, but Revelation, excuse me, Romans chapter 1 also says that the wrath of God is currently being revealed. It is currently being revealed. There is a curse that exists on this earth. Though it is lighter, though it, is not, it does not come in its fullness, but that's where our hearts were. So what do we do about it? If that's the problem, what's the answer? And so the medieval Roman Catholic Church had come up with a very complicated answer. See, you were uh, justified in your baptism. This is, this, was not, this is not correct. So hear, hear me when I say that. It's not correct. 
you're justified in your baptism. And then you can kind of lose that status depending on which sins you do and how bad they are. They had a great hierarchy of sins. You had these venial sins. You had these mortal sins. If you did the venial sins, you just had to do some things to make up for it. If you had mortal sins, then if you died, you went to hell until unless you went to the Lord's Supper and confessed to the priest and he gave you uh, things to do to make up for it. You know, one of, the, one of the hallmarks of something that is not right is it's confusing. There is a simplicity to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is that Jesus died for sinners. And if you repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ, you will be saved. Now, of course, it is so much deeper than that. We will spend all of eternity plumbing the depths of the good news of the gospel, the great mystery of salvation. But it is simple enough for a child to understand and be saved. And it is complex enough for the most educated, uh, uh, intellectual, academic, smartest person you ever met. It is is complex enough that they will never get to the bottom of it. But have been lost, though, was this simple gospel message. You know, you can really tell about if the gospel message has been uh, kept secure when you stand with someone who is dying and tell them how they might be saved. It is simple. Trust in Jesus. Repent of your sins and you will be saved. It's not a 20-step process. Christ has taken care of all of the steps. He has paid for our sins on the cross. In this salvation, it is a gift. And even the faith with which we believe is given to us by the Holy Spirit. But Martin Luther, even at the point of the 1517 um, uh, hanging up of the the 95 Theses, he's still processing this. And he's beginning to understand that this is not how you're saved, of doing all these things. And he, he looks back later in one of his commentaries on John 14. This is what he says. He says, For I did not believe in Christ... I regarded him only as a severe and terrible judge. Therefore, I cast about for other intercessors, Mary and the various other saints, also my own works and the merits of my own monastical orders. I tortured myself with prayers and fastings and vigils and freezings. It calls me pain such as I will never inflict on myself again. Here was a man who understood the holiness of God without understanding the grace of God. Without the grace of God, the holiness of God is a terrible, terrible message to us. That God cannot be in the presence of sin and that we come, we are, we are sinful people, we come from a people of unclean lips, right? But by God's grace, because of His love, He has sent His Son to hush the law's loud thunder of Mount Sinai where our Savior has answered for every one of our sins that we might have eternal life. You know, I once asked a large gathering of about 60 people. I said, and I've shared this before, I don't have many stories. How many good deeds does it take to make up for one sin? I was doing a devotional somewhere where I knew there weren't a lot of believers. So I just asked, hey, how many, how many good deeds does it take to make up for one sin? And y'all, you would have thought this was a, a mixed martial arts throwdown. Because they argued, and I just kind of sat back and watched. It was pretty comical. Uh, and it was one, no five, no two, no three. And they finally settled on two. 
It takes two good things to make up for a bad thing. It doesn't work like that. Because even our good deeds are mixed with impure motives. Even on my best day possible, I love hearing people's praises when I do good things. I love doing things for selfish motives. Um, But God, right? But God. You know, when the gospel is not clear, there are disastrous effects. When we are not trusting on Christ alone and what He has done for us, it means that we cannot believe that we are fully forgiven. If we have lost the gospel, there is no assurance of forgiveness. One of my favorite lines in the Apostles' Creed is, and we believe in the forgiveness of sins. Because apart from that, the rest of it doesn't do us a lot of good. But I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Why? Because Christ has paid for it on the cross, not because I'm making up for it for all these other things that I've done. When the gospel isn't clear, there's no assurance of perseverance. How do I know that tomorrow I'm not going to lose my salvation if my salvation is Jesus plus anything else? Because, y'all, sometimes I have a bad day. Do you have any bad days? And I have some really bad days. But the gospel says, the gospel says that everyone who comes to me, I will never cast out. That's what Jesus said. Or Philippians 1.6 says that he will bring to completion the good work that he began on you, began in you at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when the gospel isn't clear, there's no certain hope of heaven that when you die, you will be with Jesus. Did you know that today you can have assurance that if you died right now, that you would, you would wake up with Jesus in heaven. That is something that is possible today. And if you don't, I'm so glad you're here. And I would love to talk to you more about that because that is God's gift to you. When the gospel isn't clear, when the waters are muddied, there's no assurance of God's love for us or peace of conscience or joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace or perseverance there into the end, we can never stop because we always will be trying to make up for stuff because we can never know if we've done enough. My friends, Jesus has done enough. What about you? Has the great jewel of the magnificent gospel become muddied in your life? In your life? Has it lost its glimmer? When's the last time your soul overflowed with thankfulness to God as you confess your sin and are so thankful that Jesus paid for it? You know, um, our church van is, uh, is 20 years old this year. Is that like a silver jubilee or what, what is that? I don't know. Do you, what, what do you get for your 20th anniversary? Uh, it's more than a paperclip, I know, at this point. Uh, so, uh, and it's running great, by the way. Uh, and I drive it every once in a while to keep it going. It's driving now better than it ever has. Thankful for it. Um, but about three years ago, I noticed I was driving. I remember where I was. I was driving down uh, Belleville out here, and, and I, I didn't let go of the wheel. I just loosened my grip a little bit. And all of a sudden, I was going this way. You know? So I you know, turned it back. I said, we should check on that. So I, I you know, loosened my grip a little bit. Next thing I know, we're going that way. That's called alignment. And thankfully, it's a pretty easy fix. Uh, you know, our hearts have to be realigned all the time. Because the natural bent of your heart and my heart is to want to think 
that we have to do something in order to earn God's love. Have you ever sinned, done something really wrong? I know you have. And thought, I've got to make up for this. Now, you need to, maybe there's restitution or reconciliation with a friend or a spouse. That, that's true. But is it really that easy to ask for forgiveness from Jesus? Is that, is that all that it takes? Or do I have to add something to it? Maybe I can just, I just, I really need to help somebody today so I can feel better about myself. You ever done that? I know you have. And that's the alignment of your heart needing to be refocused on Jesus. See, He's the focus of our salvation, not our efforts. And that's such good news because we have bad days a lot and we blow it a lot. I know you do. I know you do because I do. We just really mess things up a lot, don't we? Even when we're trying to do what's right. <sighs> Praise God for the blood of Jesus. That we were purchased with something far more precious than silver or gold. The very precious of the blood of the Lamb. The blood of our Savior. So that's what this text is about. So we get the bad, bad news in 1 through 3. We get the great news starting in verse, is it 4? Yeah, verse 4. But God, what great words. Many have said the best words in all of Scripture, but God. That's what we deserve, but God. Because of, because of God, that's not what I get. But God, there's a gift, and it's eternal life. Let's just highlight a few things out of here. We could spend all of eternity, and perhaps we will, studying this text. First, we see that God is rich in mercy. Verse 4. Do you know what mercy is? Mercy is not giving us what we deserve. We need both mercy and grace. And we get that both of these things in this text. We need God's mercy. Mercy is not giving us what I deserve. And what do I deserve? I deserve God's wrath and curse in this life and in the next. I love telling people that the pastor of our church deserves to go to hell. And they look at me like I've lost my mind. And then I tell them it's me. And they start arguing with me. Because certainly if the preacher deserves to go to hell, then they're sunk. That's their thinking. That's what I deserve. But God, He is rich. He is rich in mercy, abundantly supplied. His mercy is infinite and limitless. I'm glad it's limitless because I need a lot of it. And His new mercies, they are new every morning. And I'm glad because tomorrow I'm going to need more. I love the song, um, uh, His mercy is more. Praise the Lord, His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. As many as my sins are, His mercy is more. He hasn't called the debt that we owe. The wages we have, worked, we have earned because of our sin have been placed on Jesus that we might not receive what we deserve. But God didn't sweep these sins under the rug. He gave, us, he gave someone else what we deserve, and that was His beloved, His Son, who paid the debt and received the wages of death that should have been on our account. Six times in six verses in this text, we find the location of our salvation. It is with or in Christ. If Paul wanted to add that we needed to do something in order to be saved along with, good, uh, along with faith, this would have been where he would have put it. But he doesn't. Now, a, a new heart leads to good works. That's what verse 10 is about. In fact, good works, a changed heart, we talked about this last week, are evidence or proof of that we have a new heart. All right, the second word here is love. Look at verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He has loved us. 
what reason do we have in Scripture for why God would love us? I, I was thinking about this last night, in the middle of the night. It's amazing that Jesus loves sinners. And, it's, and we, we say that, and it just rolls off the tongue. But, but let me tell you about sinners. Sinners are people who do terrible things, like you and me. And that's whom he loves? Sinners don't get that name because they're nice, really good people. They actually get that name because we are born with a nature that is opposed to God. And that is whom God loves. Why does God love us? We're told here the only reason, because of the great love with which he loved us. The only reason we have for God's love for us is because of his love. Now we can say theologically it's for his own glory. And we will spend eternity rejoicing and giving him worship. But he doesn't need those things. But he lavishes his love and his grace and mercy on us because he loves to be a loving God. The third phrase, I just want to mention in verse 7, the immeasurable riches of his grace. I love this phrase. The word immeasurable here is a fun one in Greek. It means all-surpassing, extraordinary, excelling. It's like what water does uh, when there's a flood. It's going to overflow its banks. It's going to overflow everything around it, impacting and affecting everything. Deeper than the Marianas Trench, clearer than the Bahamas, the more inexhaustible than the seven oceans of the world, this is how rich His mercy and grace is to us. And you are the object of that grace. Mercy is not giving us what we deserve. Grace is giving us what we don't deserve. What has He given us? He has given us salvation. In mercy, He's not given us hell. In grace, He has given us eternal life that we might not perish. and We might have life now and live forever with Him. And this He did through His Son who gave His life up for you because He loves you. Verses 8 and 9 pull it all together. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. You did not do it. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. A gift flowing from the limitless and infinite storehouse of His grace, given because of love for the sinner through Jesus, His Son. Works won't do it. Can't be a part of it. Because that would diminish the gift and take glory away from Jesus. This salvation is received by the faith that the Holy Spirit gives us. For even our salvation is from Him and through Him and to Him, just like all things. So, how do we land this plane? Why, why are we talking about something that happened in 1517? Now, I'm a, I'm a history nerd. I'm a history uh, major. I love history. Right? I, could, I could say this stuff all day long and be happy. But y'all, this is very much up and running in our own hearts today. Our hearts are always pulling away from the simple gospel message. Uh, we are either turning away from it and thinking that we can uh, live however we want to, right? No, that's not right. Romans 6 tells us that how can we uh, who have died to sin still live in it? That's not the call. We're not called to live crazy lives. Uh, but, but nor are we to go the other way of my salvation is by my obedience. Rather, it's like train tracks. Right? Keeping our eyes in the distance on the straight road to Jesus. He has done it 
all. And if we trust in Him, if we have turned our back on our sins and turned to Him, then we can be assured that if you die today, you can go to be with Him in heaven. For He will either come and get us in our death at some point soon, or He will come back upon the clouds with the angels, the trumpet of God, the sound of the archangel, the command of God. And those who are believers in Christ, not because of anything within us, but because of Christ's finished work on the cross and the empty tomb of Easter morning, those who are in Christ will live with Him forever in the new heavens and the earth. But those who do not know the Lord, though the offer is made now, though many will reject it, will spend an eternity in hell in the presence of God's wrath. So do not tarry. Why is this important? Because the number one question we must answer, how is man made right with God? And I'm telling you, it's only through Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the finished work of Jesus and the amazing grace that you've shown to us in him, the the amazing riches of your kindness and grace that you will show to us for all of eternity and the ages to come. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.